0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Greetings and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part two in our series on the Belgica expedition, the first endeavor that is part of what today we call the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Let us get rolling. Last time, the Belgica had departed from Europe, steaming south towards Antarctica. The ship had to meet the expedition's new doctor, Frederick Cook, in Rio de Janeiro. Adrian de Garlache, the expedition's commander, had his hands full from the start due to the crew's volatile mix and his own passive leadership. I want to talk about this because it really sets the stage for the rest of the series. The crew was made up of 13 Belgians and 10 foreigners, the latter mostly Norwegians. Many of the Norwegians were experienced whalers and fishermen, and they disliked the Belgians who resented being ordered about by foreigners. And let us remember, this was a Belgian expedition. Degar had sold the endeavor as such, and he could not afford to antagonize his own countrymen. Regarding de Gar-Lash, he was an interesting man. He was smart and an intellectual. He was confident and firm when sailing a ship. Yet as a commander, he was a wet noodle. He disliked confrontation and ignored festering problems or tried to get his officers to take care of things themselves. I mentioned last time that he was sensitive to criticism, and thus he was terrified of doing anything that would report it back to the Belgian press that might be controversial. This included disciplining or firing Belgian crew members or giving non-Belgians too much authority. This made some of the Belgians, and I stress some, not all, more willing to disobey orders or challenge the officers. I want to note that the officers of Belgica had contracts and were thus bound to perform to the specs of said agreement. The crew was a different matter. This was not the Belgian navy. You couldn't flog or court-martial or punish men for disobeying orders. The only real threat was to get rid of them, and in the case of the Belgians, they knew Daguerlach didn't want to do that. Another interesting thing about Daguerlach was that he preached to the crew that the Belgica was a ship where social status and position didn't matter. Everyone, he said, was equal. But that was not true. On board a ship, you still needed a chain of command. And like most vessels, there was a distance between the crew and the officers. So when de Garlache talked about this idea of equality amongst the men of Belgica, it was met with rolled eyes. Carl Wink, a young Norwegian sailor, wrote this of the situation quote, De Garlache's comments about equality are entirely satirical. End quote. The expedition's second in command, Captain Georges Le Quante, was a good sailor and officer but he had a fierce temper and was quick to anger. The men didn't want to get on his bad side. The Norwegian sailor, Wink, who I just mentioned, wrote of an ugly incident that occurred during a storm in the Atlantic. The storm was so bad, everyone, including the veteran sailors, were seasick. Captain LaQuante came on deck, miserable from the storm, and saw one of the ship's two cats, Svedrup. The cat pooped on the deck. This sent LaQuante into a rage, and he picked up the cat and threw it overboard. Wink wrote, quote, Such behavior doesn't serve to endear him with the other men. Now, such behavior really makes me dislike Laquante, but I tell the story more to demonstrate the man's temperament. Also, I want to point out how foolish and wasteful this was. I mean, it was cruel to just kill the cat, but it was also stupid. The ship had two cats, Nansen and Svedrup. Cats provided a crucial role on an ocean voyage, they kept the ship clear of vermin, such as rats and mice. By killing one of the two cats, you undermine the quality of life on the ship. Also, as pointed out by Wink, you angered the crew. One of the other things cats provided on a ship was affection and closeness. Many times you'll find members of a crew develop a close bond with an animal on a voyage. We've seen this on other expeditions. When members of Shackleton's Endurance had to put down the expedition's dogs, it was gut-wrenching. Well, by killing one of the cats, LaQuante had alienated some of the crew and hampered the expedition, even if in a small way. Regarding the ship's pecking order, after Degar Lache and the Quante, the next man up was first mate, Roald Amundsen. Amundsen was 24 years old. His father had been a hard, demanding man who had died at sea when Amundsen was just 14. Amundsen's mother had made her son promise to avoid the maritime trade, a promise he kept until age 21 when she died. He quit university and went to sea. Now Amundsen was out to find adventure and experience, and his time on the Belgica is going to give him both. Amundsen would prove to be a good go-between when it came to the conflicts between the Belgians and Norwegians. He was calm and sensible, a natural leader, and was a force to be reckoned with. He had even studied French and Dutch before sailing to better help him communicate with the crew. Also, because he had no actual experience navigating a ship while waiting for Belgica to depart, he had signed on with the merchant ship to learn such skills. This really demonstrates the dedication and drive of Amundsen. He was not just going to do this expedition as a job. It was part of an ambitious plan to achieve bigger things. It was an obsession with gaining glory and doing great deeds. He was so focused on this, it borders on maniacal. He trained physically and mentally to overcome most difficulties. The harder the situation, the better. Amundsen had an obsession with suffering, believing that one had to suffer and endure to find glory. He had always adored stories of polar exploration and devoured anything he could about the lost Franklin Expedition. A reminder, in the late 1840s, 129 men had gone in search of the Northwest Passage. None had returned. They had resorted to cannibalism, unsuccessfully, in order to survive. Amundsen wrote this of the expedition and the suffering they must have endured. Quote, Strangely enough, the thing in Sir John's narrative that appealed to me most strongly, Sir John being John Franklin, the expedition's commander, was the suffering he and his men endured. A strange ambition burned with me to endure these same sufferings. End quote. That statement encapsulates Amundsen, this obsessive drive to endure the worst sort of things in order to find glory. Anyhow, the Belgica headed south towards the Madeira Islands. It was here in early September that the ship had its first of what will turn out to be many troubling incidents. One of the Belgian sailors, Jan van Meerlo, had been shoveling coal for two straight hours. He collapsed and, once helped to his feet, marched straight to where the ship's weapons were kept and took a revolver off the wall. What his intentions were, no one knows, but Amundsen wrestled the man to the deck and held him down. It ultimately took five men to subdue Van Mirlo. It was clear that the guy had had a mental breakdown, but Daguerlach would order him back to duty within a couple of days, as if nothing had happened. Also, the ship's weapons were not put under lock and key. The expedition reached the Madeira Islands on September 10, 1897. After taking on supplies, they departed three days later. To save coal, the ship shut down her engines and used her sails, and they rode the trade winds towards South America. Belgica ran into a unique problem as they entered the tropics. The ship was insulated and well-sealed, and temperatures below deck rose to a brutal 130 degrees Fahrenheit, or 55 degrees Celsius. The men hung hammocks on the deck and slept outside. But things were not all bad. The men would gather at night each evening and smoke and sing and dance. On October 6th, the Belgica crossed the equator. Of the crew, 13 had never crossed the imaginary line that went around the center of the world and were thus exposed to an age-old initiation ritual. We've actually seen this before. In the British Navy, they would dunk the equator virgins in the ocean. On the Belgica, there was a goofy ceremony with the veterans decked out in costumes. One of the men was dressed as Neptune, the Roman god of the sea. Amundsen said that he was forced to put on rags and paraded before the rest of the crew. He then had his face slathered in some disgusting gunk. He was then doused with buckets of seawater. He then got a cigar and later champagne, celebrating the end of his initiation. Author Julian Sancton, in his book, Madhouse at the End of the Earth, the Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night, wrote this about this exercise in torture slash humiliation. Quote, the ceremony and ensuing festivities achieved the true purpose of such initiation rituals to bond men together in brotherhood. Differences of hierarchy and nationality fell away. The Belgica was a family, at least for an evening. End quote. The Belgica would continue across the Atlantic and arrive in Rio de Janeiro on October 23, 1897. Here the ship was finally united with the expedition's doctor, American Frederick Cook. Cook had arrived in Rio two weeks earlier and taken up residence in a nearby mountain town due to the fact that yellow fever was running through the city. Well, he received word of Belgica's arrival and went to the harbor, only to be a bit disappointed by what he saw. The Belgica was uninspiring. Cook noted that she was odd in shape and in color. He was not the only one who had that reaction to the vessel. Anyhow, Cook's arrival sparked some excitement amongst the crew, as the doctor was something of a celebrity due to his experience with Robert Perry in Greenland. The first issue that popped up was the fact that Cook didn't speak French, Dutch, or Norwegian. He knew some German from his early years with his German immigrant father, and he spoke some Inuit, but that was worthless here. The result was Cook having to navigate his way, linguistically, with most of the ship. That's not the best situation for the man who was supposed to keep the crew healthy. But we will soon find out that Cook was really good at what he did. He learned a bit of French and a bit of Dutch and a bit of Norwegian, and then he leaned on those who spoke English and German. He made it work, all the while proving he had a way with people, despite the language barrier. Cook was a magnetic man who liked to experience the rest of the world, and that meant other people as well. And the crew, officers and enlisted men, were drawn to that, and they would quickly come to like and trust the outgoing American. Otherwise, Cook would set up shop on Belgica and find the men had arrived in South America in good health. Now, while the addition of Cook was a positive for the expedition, the arrival of Belgica in Rio would bring some festering problems to the surface. Everyone hated the ship's French Cook, a man simply identified as Le Monnier, who loved nothing more than to goad others and pick fights. Also, there were cliques forming on the ship that created unhealthy divides. The obvious wedge was between the Belgians and the Norwegians. The Belgians were seen as hot-headed, while the Norwegians were calm and more professional. But it was more than that. You had the Flemish-speaking Dutch versus the French-speaking Dutch, and officers versus enlisted. There was one particularly divisive clique, a trio of Belgians, Jean Van Damme, Maurice Warzy, and Franz Dom. They were surly and combative toward the Belgians and the officers. So all of this had simmered on the ocean crossing, and then the men arrived at a city that offered women and booze. It's a bad mix. The city, which had a sizable Belgian population, was excited about the expedition's arrival. City officials thus held a big ceremony aboard the ship, only to have Belgica's machinist, Joseph de Vouvier, show up drunk. He insulted a Brazilian vice-admiral and then started screaming insults at Amundsen when he tried to intervene. De Vouvier would go to the ship's gun racks, again, why they weren't locked up, we don't know, and had to be wrestled to the deck before he could do anything stupid. He would be fired for his actions, but then rehired before departing Rio. Everything came to a head a few days later. The Belgians, especially the troublesome trio of Van Damme, warzy and Dom, were itching for a fight. And while they would have loved to do battle with the Norwegians, the numbers were just too evenly matched. Thus, Franz Dom turned his attention to someone that everyone hated, the French cook, Le Monnier. He got things going by dumping a 25-gallon pan of drinking water over the unsuspecting cook. A fight ensued. Others jumped in, but no one to help Le Marnier, who was despised by everybody. The result was Le Monnier taking a severe beating. When the officers investigated the fight, the Belgians claimed that Le Marnier had started it, and they said that he had insulted the officers and was planning to sabotage the expedition. The Norwegians hated the cook just as much as the Belgians, so they just nodded along. Desgarloches had no choice but to fire Le Monnier. To add insult to injury, as a replacement, De Garlache named Jean Van Damme, the guy who had just beaten the crap out of Le Monnier, as the new cook. After taking on supplies in Rio, Belgica departed on October 30th. There was a brief stop in Cabo Polonia on November 9th before reaching Montevideo, Uruguay on November 11th, staying for four days. Belgica took on more supplies, with Frederick Cook noting all the fresh fruit and vegetables, including strawberries, apples, cherries, lettuce, radishes, peas, beans, potatoes, and cabbage. After that, it was down the coast. The destination was the famed Strait of Magellan. On November 19th, the men spotted penguins off Argentina for the first time as the cold really took hold of the expedition. And then on November 27th, they experienced their first major storm, with winds reaching hurricane force. It was a ferocious and terrifying situation. Enormous waves broke over the sides and flooded the decks below. Sensing the ship was in danger, Degarlasch changed course to the southeast toward the Falkland Islands, sailing hard into the wind for hours. Eventually, the storm broke. This momentary crisis had revealed two important things. First, Degarlasch knew how to handle a ship. The man was a sailor. Maybe he wasn't a leader, but in the eye of the storm, he was calm, sensible, and firm. This earned him the admiration of the crew. Second, the Belgica, the men realized, was a wonderful ship. She was nimble, responsive, stout, and immensely seaworthy. After the storm, Frederick Cook wrote, quote, She already has a place in our affections, as definitely as a pet horse. End quote. The ship entered a sort of detente at this point. The officers and crew enjoying a calm and relatively peaceful journey. Le Monnier, the hated Cook, was gone, and de Gerloche had earned a modicum of respect from everyone. Another reason was the presence of Dr. Frederick Cook. The man had no side in the War of Cliques on the Belgica. He had no favorites to appease, no biases, and thus he helped bridge the gap between the men. In many ways, he became a sounding board for everyone on the ship. He was the guy they could go to if they wanted to vent or whatever. He was a sympathetic ear, a voice of reason. All of this happened despite the language barrier between Cook and most of the ship's crew. The Belgica headed into the Strait of Magellan in late November. Dr. Cook wrote about the vast sheep farms along the strait. One farm consisted of 120,000 acres and 150,000 sheep. This made the wool industry highly profitable, if a lonely affair, due to the isolation of the ranches. On December 1st, Belgica reached the Chilean point of Punta Arenas on the western side of the strait, about two-thirds of the way through the passage. The place had all the hallmarks of a frontier town. Cook said it was, quote, "...a wilderness of low wooden and sheet-iron huts, which were quickly and cheaply constructed and as quickly destroyed." The city was teeming with people of all stripes, including sheep farmers, gold miners, sailors, soldiers, traders, exiles, fugitives, prostitutes, and cowboys. Every place served alcohol, even the churches. Cook said that Punta Arenas was, the dumping ground for so much of discontented humanity. And it is here that all the goodwill that had been built up over the past few weeks amongst Belgica's crew would implode. The primary culprit were the typical things. Booze, women, and smoldering resentments. With the ship in port, the men indulged in their worst vices, and it wasn't long before things got out of hand. Men refused orders. They'd go ashore whenever they wanted, and fights broke out in town. The biggest problems came from the clique of Belgians, Van Damme, Orsey and Dom, who were testing the limits of their belligerence. They knew that Desgarlache was reluctant to fire them. And then, on the evening of December 9th, Van Damme came to Desgarlache's door and demanded an advance on his wages, He was heading into town for some fun. He was doing this despite the fact that he didn't have permission to leave the ship. He told Garlash to give him his pay, or he'd quit. Degarlash blinked. He advanced Van Dam his money and gave him leave. Degarlash hoped it would appease the man, but instead it only emboldened him and the other malcontents. Van Dam and five others would go on an all-night drinking binge, and the next day there was a confrontation with Degarlash after some items were stolen on the ship. Van Damme insulted Degarlasch and dared him to do anything. A group of angry, defiant sailors gathered with him. Mutiny was in the air. Captain Lequante stood behind his boss, a gun in his pocket, ready to use it. If Van Damme thought that Degarlasch would give in, he was wrong. Things had gone too far. Degarlasch ordered the red flag raised on Belgica, indicating to port authorities that he needed aid. A tense standoff followed, but after two hours, no one arrived to help Degarlasch. Thus, the commander took one of the dinghies over to a Chilean warship. While this happened, things on the Belgica nearly exploded. One of the chief belligerents of the crew, Maurice Warzy, returned to the ship, completely drunk. LeQuante didn't want the troublemaker to join the others, where he might light a match under an explosive situation. Thus, the captain, his gun ready in his pocket, grabbed Warzy and forced him away from the others. Finally, at midnight, De Gerlach returned to the ship with a force of Chilean soldiers. Van Damme was furious, and he went and got a gun. Again, why these things weren't locked up is beyond me, and headed towards Des quarters. Van Damme proceeded to insult the captain, and threatened to give an interview to the press in Belgium, and ruin Des This scared the commandant, but at this point, he had no choice. Van Damme and Warzy were marched off the ship that night by Chilean soldiers. The next day, friends Dom would join them. Joseph de Vouvier, the ship's incompetent mechanic, was also given his walking papers. Daguerlach gave each of these men a one-pound sterling coin as they left the ship, a way to try and bribe them into silence. It did not work as Dom, despite his old boss, would later give an interview to a Belgian newspaper saying that Daguerlach had fired every Belgian from the expedition. As I said, Daguerlach knew this would look bad in the papers back home. The crew was now less than half Belgian, not what he wanted. But to be honest, he had no choice. The problematic Belgians had been terrible to deal with, and likely would have been even worse in the future. As a note, Louis Michot, the former French foreign legionnaire, was given the role of cook despite no experience in the culinary world. In Poudarinas, the Belgica added 100 tons of coal. They were now down to 19 men. This included six officers and engineers, a doctor, four scientists, a cook, and seven sailors. Also, there would be one final addition to Belgica, or shall we say additions. While the ship was being loaded with coal, Rats would make their way on board, and soon there will be a lot more of them. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly From Punta Arenas, the Belgica departed the Strait of Magellan and headed into the maze of mountainous islands that made up the tip of South America. It was mid-December 1897. The plan was to go to Gramland, aka the Antarctic Peninsula, which was directly south about 600 miles or 1,000 kilometers. From there, they would sail to the far side of Antarctica, to Victoria Land, before winter set in. It was an ambitious plan. The problem was that the voyage was going slow. Going through the twisted passages of Tierra del Fuego was not easy. One mistake could sink a ship, as de Garlache had learned nearly a decade before. Also, the weak willed de Garlache gave in when his scientists asked to stop and investigate the islands of Tierra del Fuego, many of which were unstudied. De Garlache didn't want to do this, but he had sold the expedition as one of science, so he felt obliged to do so. And so the Romanian naturalist Emil Racovita and the Polish geologist Henrik Artowski had a field day roaming around the unexplored islands. Dr. Cook loved it as well, taking the chance to study the three indigenous tribes of Tierra del Fuego. He now saw himself as an expert in ethnology and was fascinated by these tribes, which many people knew little about. Roald Amundsen took these opportunities to test himself. He climbed mountains and came back exhausted and muddy, but he was also thrilled because it had offered him a serious challenge and he had succeeded. On December 21st, the ship went down the Beagle Channel and arrived at the village of Ushuaia, which consisted of 25 buildings and a chapel. Here, it was arranged for Belgica to add 40 tons of coal at a depot about an hour to the west. De Gar-Lasch left Cook and Artowski at the village to study the native people. Meanwhile, he proceeded to the depot for his coal. Belgica got its coal, but as that was happening, Christmas arrived, which allowed De Gar-Lasch to have a moment of triumph amongst the crew. He and Amundsen, while the men were ashore, took the time to decorate the ship. The Commandant then brought out gifts he had brought from Belgium and set them out on the men's bunks. There was winter clothing, scarves, puzzles, books, tobacco, and more. When the men returned, they were thrilled by the gesture. They then celebrated with hot grog and music. Des even gave a rousing speech, a rarity for the man. He ended it all by saying, Union makes strength, which I could say in French, but it sounds really bad so I'll just say that he did well, and the men cheered their commander. The Belgica returned to Ushuaia to get Cook and Artowski. There, the local missionary, John Lawrence, asked if he could be dropped at a place called Haberton Ranch, about 35 miles to the east. Daguerlach was happy to oblige as it was on his way. The ship thus headed along the Beagle Channel, and on New Year's Day, 1898, they neared their destination. I want to remind everyone that the Beagle Channel is not the Strait of Magellan which the Belgica had entered after weaving through a bunch of islands after they had departed Punta Arenas. The big danger here was incomplete and wrong maps and charts. That day, the ship moved along, depths of the channel being measured periodically. Seaman Adam Tulleston took a reading of 28 meters, or 92 feet, plenty deep. And then a short time later, seaweed was seen under the ship. A depth reading was conducted, 7 meters, 23 feet. The alarm went up, another reading, 6 meters. The engines were slammed in reverse. Too late. The Belgica came to a screeching halt atop a dome-shaped rock. They were only 4 meters or 13 feet from the channel's floor. Belgica was stuck. The dinghies and whaleboats were then put to sea to lighten the ship and even help pull. Again, no luck. Daguerlach now had to wait for high tide and hope that Belgica would lift off its perch. But there was a danger. The ship began to tip on its side. If it tipped too much, well, it could start taking on water. If that happened, Belgica was doomed. Degarlasch ordered the ship propped up, using wooden beams placed between the rock they were perched on and the ship. As all of this was happening at Haberton Ranch, Lucas Bridges, the 23-year-old son of a rancher, saw the listing ship and called out, asking Belgica if they needed help. An affirmative answer set the young man into motion. He returned a few hours later with a flat-bottomed barge and 20 local fuegans. Working together, the crew and the locals offloaded 30 tons of coal and cargo. It was a dangerous game due to the high winds and whipping waters, but they managed to get things done. And then, at high tide, Dagarlash called on everything he had available. His engines, his sails, and even his people. But no luck. Belgica was firmly held on the rock. Dagarlash tried again, this time after emptying the ship's freshwater reserves. Again, it was not enough. It was then that the beams propping up the ship snapped. With the braces gone, Belgica was in danger of falling over. The situation was desperate. Degarlasch called Laquante and Amundsen to his cabin, asking them if they agreed that the ship was doomed. They did not dispute the assessment. Degarlasch began to cry. With Belgica surely lost, steps were made to abandon the ship. Laquante ordered the Belgian flag retrieved. Degarlasch was crushed. All that he could think of was the shame and disgrace that awaited him back home. His expedition had been lost even before it had reached Antarctica. And thus, Adrian de Galache pulled one last desperate move out of the playbook. He waited for the next high tide, and as it neared, he had the fore topsail raised, and then sent every man available to the deck to try and raise up the ship's anchor with a windlass, which is a big winch used for such things. The engine spun up to max pressure. The propeller was barely submerged in the water and was spinning faster and faster, at a rate that could not be sustained for long. Then Degarlash waited for the exact moment, high tide. The engine roared at maximum pressure. Prepare to sail, raise the anchor, full speed ahead. The men pulled on the windlass to raise the anchor. And then the ship rose up, just for a moment, then fell back onto the rock. Again, Degarlash ordered. The engine screamed, the men strained. For a second time, Belgica rose up for an instant, only to fall violently back down. One more time, ordered Degarloche. Engines, sails and men strained with all their might. And suddenly, Belgica rose up and her keel slid off the rock. The ship was floating. The men erupted in cheers. Of De Degarlash, Seaman Carl Wink wrote, quote, "...the commandant stood with tears of joy in his eyes." End quote. Belgica had been stuck on the rocks for 22 hours, but she was now free. The sturdy little ship had not disappointed the men. She had endured much, yet had come away mostly unscathed. Belgica had done them proud. The expedition could continue the mission... De Yarlache's honor intact. It would, however, take several days for the ship to be inspected and minor repairs conducted. In this time, Cook was thrilled to go visit one of the local native tribes, the Ona. In his book, Cook devotes an entire chapter to the natives. There were only 1,600 of them left, living in villages of about 100 each, and it turned out that this was one of the last opportunities to study these people before their way of life was completely gone. They were dying off due to whooping cough, measles, and other diseases. Cook gained their trust by giving them candy and treating their ailments. They even allowed Cook to take pictures of them, something they were loath to do. These were some of the first photos ever of these people. It is a testament to Cook's powers of persuasion. Cook also spoke with Thomas Bridges, the father of the young man who had helped get the Belgica off the rock in the channel, who showed the doctor a 30,000-word dictionary of the local language. He had been assembling it for more than 30 years. Cook offered to take the document, which was the only copy, and have it published. Bridges agreed to this, but he wouldn't part with the precious volume until Belgica was on its way back from Antarctica. The last thing he wanted to do was have his life's work lost in the polar ice. It's a reminder that what Belgica was doing and where she was going was going to be very dangerous. Belgica next headed to Isla de los Estados off the southern tip of South America for water. It was an Argentinian penal colony, and they had not had a ship visit them for 18 months. Here, Belgica replenished her water supplies, and then departed the island on January 14th. The next destination was Antarctica. The Belgica took seven days to cross Drake's Passage. The seas were calm for much of the time, but on January 19th, the skies began to darken, and the crew sighted their first iceberg. The next day, there was thick fog, and along with the hazy mists came the great icebergs. The Belgica sailed into a new world surrounded by masses of ice, some taller than the mass of the ship. They were awesome to see and terrifying to hear. The men could hear the slow-motion thunder of bergs crashing into one another or of great chunks calving off an iceberg and into the ocean. And it did not take long for the ship to become nearly crushed. As Belgica moved its way south through the fog, with Laquante at the helm, the ship came through a patch of thick fog and was greeted by the sight of a massive berg. The Quante turned Belgica out of the path of the iceberg, but too late. The ship's keel crashed into the berg, wood cracking and splintering. Degarlash would take the helm, but he did not back off. Instead, he pressed into the fog, deftly keeping Belgica, which was mostly unharmed by the collision, away from other dangers. Roald Amundsen was impressed by his commander's cool demeanor, saying, I cannot help but admire his daring. Ahead always. I shall follow him cheerfully and try to do my duty. This is, by the way, a very Amundsen-like thing to say. He had no qualms about pressing into danger to meet a challenge, and he admired others who had the same attitude. A couple of days later, on January 22, 1898, the ship ran into a big storm, the winds reaching gale force. By the way, gale force winds are at least 32 miles per hour, or 50 kilometers. The ship was carried high on the waves and then came crashing down into the ocean, all the while navigating through a field of icebergs. The water was knee-deep on the deck and chunks of ice were everywhere. It was also snowing. It was here that Amundsen called on the men to clear a scupper. Scuppers are essentially holes in the side of a ship that allow water to drain instead of pooling up on the deck. Well, one of them was frozen shut. The job to clear it fell to seamen Ludwig Jalmar Johansen and Carl Wink. Wink was a 20-year-old Norwegian who had originally been a cabin boy but had been promoted to sailor in Punta Arenas. He was cheerful and eager and well-liked by everyone. The men would try and jab at the ice in the scupper to break it up, but with no luck. It was clogged with ice and loose pieces of coal. Johansen tried leaning over the side of the ship and smashing the mast with a mallet from that vantage, but no luck. It was then that an iceberg appeared ahead of Belgica, forcing the ship to swing to starboard to avoid a collision. At the same time, the winds grabbed the ship's sails, sending her lurching forward and also at the same moment, a massive wave swept over the ship. It was a terrible convergence of events. When the wave cleared, Carl Wink was gone. The alarm went up, man overboard. De was on the bridge in moments and ordered the ship to reverse engines. Every second they waited took them further away from the overboard sailor, who couldn't survive long in the freezing waters. When the ship reached Wink, they tossed him a rope. He managed to grab onto the rope, but it was clear that he was losing the fight with the ocean. There was no way that he had the strength to hold on to the rope and be pulled on board. At this point, he was barely afloat. Amundsen wanted to lower a lifeboat, but he was overruled by Desgarlache. The waters were too rough, and it would only risk the lives of other men by doing such a risky thing. And then Georges Le did something extraordinary. He volunteered to go into the water himself and get the boy. He quickly tied a rope around his waist and asked permission of Dégalache to go into the water. The commandant hesitated, afraid to let such an important person risk his life in such a fashion. But Lequante did not hesitate. When his boss didn't reply, he stepped onto the edge of the ship and jumped. Cook said it was, quote, "...bravery impossible to appreciate," end quote. Le went under but came up next to Wink. The young sailor was barely breathing and paralyzed by the cold, the Quante wrapped his arms around them, and the men on the ship tried to hoist them upward. The situation was a terrible one. The waves would literally take the two men almost up to the deck of the ship, only to slam them down back into the ocean. Wink was now helpless. His clothes were soaked, making him at least 200 pounds of dead weight. The Quante tried desperately to hold on, but each time the waves swelled higher, they slammed back down, and his grip weakened. And then it happened again, and Wink was gone. The young man's body floated up on a wave near the ship's deck and Johansen managed to grab onto his left hand. But the ship rocked and the water slammed back down and the grip was lost. And this time, Wink was gone for good. His body carried away on the waves. The men watched in horror. His face was black and he was foaming at the mouth. They could only watch him float away as they hauled the Quante back onto the ship. Degar Lash led the ship to some land that was spotted on the low bow. It was Low Island, the southernmost of the South Shetland Islands. Belgica moored next to the island and waited for the seas to calm. The death of Carl Wink was a difficult one for the crew. They knew they were doing something dangerous by coming on this expedition, but now that danger had hit home in a brutal fashion, taking from them a decent, honest, and well-liked young man. Degarlash wondered what he would tell the boy's parents, while Amundsen fought off pangs of remorse, as he had been the one to order Wink to clear the scupper. Quante took the boy's death badly, he had done an immensely risky and heroic thing to try and save him, but he could only wonder if he had done enough. The death haunted him. He wrote, quote, I kept seeing Wink, his lifeless eyes wide open, washed away forever, End quote. The next day, January 23rd, 1898, at 5 p.m., through the afternoon mist, a black dot was spotted on the horizon. Land. Belgica had reached Antarctica. She entered Hughes Bay on the northwestern coast of Gramland, Mountains 2,000 feet high could be seen, and walls of ice more than 100 feet high. These were unknown waters, and Belgica proceeded slowly and with great care. At 9.30 that evening, Daguerlach, Cook, Arktowski, Rakovitsa, and Danko lowered a boat and rowed ashore to one of the small islands along the coast. The men explored the island for about an hour, returning with samples of rock, lichen, moss, and seaweed. Danko came back with two live penguins. Degarlasch named the island Auguste Island after his father. And so, Adrian Degarlasch had reached Antarctica. It was a dream come true for him and others on the expedition. But the arrival on the mysterious continent was diminished by the death of one of the crew just a day before. No matter, Degarlasch was incredibly proud of what he had done. He was in the forefront of a new age of polar exploration. So, that is where we will leave things for today. The plan was for Belgica to head to Victoria Land on the other side of the continent, mapping the coast along the way. But if you know anything about this story, the Belgica is destined for a very dangerous journey and one very, very long night. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please take care, and I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. To find out more, go to airwavemedia.com, where you can find other great shows, such as All Creatures and The Conspirators. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt Podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The history of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt.